A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 220 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like the fury of Cade Skywalker as he single-handedly wipes out the Sith, the Dark Lord one at a time, the EU guru himself, our count of these two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! We take what is given, and what I'm given is an ass whooping. <laughs> oh, man. Go. Could you imagine having a lightsaber and just get... Uh, just you know, take off the, the layer of skin on the outside. You know, that would be a mom thing if a mom was a Sith right there. Oh, God. How you been, my man? I'm doing all right. We're uh, kind of making our way through the end of summer. My, uh, I always teach summer schools so that I can, you know, online. Uh, so I can earn a little extra cash for, uh, you know, bills and that sort of thing. So uh, that has now ended. I'm in my little gap. That basically means that my summer break is like two weeks long. And uh, tomorrow is the last day of it for me. So uh, the meetings are about to resume. So I'm frantically working on timeline stuff and squeezing as much productivity out of summer as humanly possible for this <laughs> tiny little two-week break. Excellent. Yeah, for me, it's camping, man. Right after this, we're uh, heading out, going to a, a lake nearby. And then one week from here, it's off to summer camp. It's go, go, go. Yep. Constantly. Yes. Well... Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we explore John Ostrander's Star Wars Legacy, Volume 10, Extremes. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we're going to give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. That's right, and while Billy Joel may ask why he goes to extremes, we know exactly why we're here. Wow, bad bad musical reference to what the late 90s or something but i love the song we are checking out legacy volume 10 which is extremes legacy volume one basically ends here right it was a 50 issue series that ends with the storyline called extremes though this trade paperback includes the single story the fate of dak which happens concurrently with the monster arc we looked at last time we looked at legacy and then the three issues of extremes this is it And unlike Knights of the Old Republic that really kind of ends with its final issue, and then Knights of the Old Republic War is sort of this weird little add-on at the end that isn't really necessary, in this case we are left with a lot of cliffhangers because Legacy War will come next as a miniseries and finally wrap this up. So in essence, this is sort of you might call the penultimate issue or penultimate episode of our coverage of Legacy, though it is the final episode to cover 
the Legacy series proper because war is not considered part of it necessarily. And it's a doozy. Mm -hmm. This is the series. Every time I read this series, every time we come back to it, the further along we get with Marvel's new stuff, it hurts more and more to read this series. (laughs) Because this is my favorite Star Wars series of all time. And in saying that, that also means that it is, to me, the peak of Dark Horse's Star Wars storytelling. There are so many references to things that that show that it's building on, you know, 20, 30, whatever it was, years of continuity to get to where it is. Um, There's a point at which they are evacuating Dac, which, of course, by itself, that name, Dac slash Mon Calamari slash Mon Cala, the fact that there are so many names for the planet is a Legends kind of thing. The fact that we have... An evacuation, and it's not just the Moncala slash Mon Calamari or the Quarrens that they're trying to get off. They're talking about evacuating the Moappa from Clone Wars Adventures, the Waladons from the Jedi Prince series, or the Trioculus books, as some like me uh, have called them over the years. The, the, the whole development of the One Sith and the background of Darth Crate as Asherod Het. There's so much of this that builds on continuity that had built for decades. Or in some cases, that John Ostrander himself had built over the different series that he worked on, that you feel like there's this big tapestry to it. And these stories are huge. Essentially, this is a story that starts, at least in this volume, with basically the equivalent of a super weapon being released and a holocaust against one of the major species in Star Wars that fundamentally alters their place in the galaxy going into Legacy Volume 2 and anything that could have taken place after this. And I sit back and I look at the Marvel stuff right now and think they would never have the guts to do that. It's it's like the Dark Horse era was things were either really good or they were really crappy and there wasn't a lot of mediocre stuff in the middle. It tended to lean one way or the other. You wouldn't see a lot of, say, fives out of ten. It'd be more like seven to ten and one to three kind of things. Whereas with Marvel right now, you got some really good stuff from time to time, some utterly horrible stuff, and then everything else, it's like their goal is to be mediocre. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not shift things. If we're going to do something that is extreme and daring, it's not going to be the annihilation of an important species in Star Wars. It's not going to be creating a new Sith Empire or telling a story that's far in the future or far outside of everything else that's happening with Star Wars so we can be daring with it and see characters, you know, killed off or whatever um, that we've created specifically to drive that emotional story, blah, blah, blah. No, instead, the daring aspects are (gasps) Han Solo was married and she was a black woman. But don't worry, when it turns out that he wasn't actually married to her, we're going to go one more step progressive and she's going to be bisexual and had a relationship with Afra, who is now also revealed to be bisexual, aren't we progressive? Clickbait, clickbait, clickbait. <laughs> Marvel doesn't seem to get what made the Dark Horse Star Wars comics so well received and so loved over the years. Maybe they'll get there. Hopefully they'll get there with uh, with uh, uh, Kieran Gillian now taking over with issue, I think it's number 38, taking over the main Star Wars series for Marvel. There's a chance, because he has his hands on a lot of different stories, and so far some of the stuff he's been telling has been at least a little more daring than what Jason Aaron, for instance, was telling, or what some of the, the miniseries were willing to tell. But with this being, to me, sort of the peak of where Dark Horse's comics were, it, it, it's really jarring to go back to it. Yeah. So what we're looking at here is essentially the cliffhanger ending of Legacy, leading into Legacy War, one of the strongest series Star Wars has seen, and one that really 
to me, brings back massive waves of nostalgia in reading it. I, I for instance, can't wait for John Ostrander and Jan Dersima um, to finish up the launch of Hex or Dusk, which is a new non-Star Wars series that they put together through Kickstarter. Uh, the first Kickstarter I ever backed, and I even backed it at a level that was high enough that I will appear as a background character somewhere in the comic. Yeah. This was a, one of the strongest creative teams Star Wars comics have ever had, and this was their strongest series. If you haven't checked out Star Wars Legacy, you definitely should, and now you'll have the entire regular series run of episodes of Beyond the Films to listen to as you do, as some of our listeners actually already are doing uh, through a massive reread. But great cliffhanger ending is what we're going to be seeing here. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when they did this and they and they wrapped it at 50, that... You know, at the time, it was that whole accessibility, you know, like they weren't really telling us that, you know, it was wrapping up. It was like, oh, it's ending, but we're switching to an arc. And and it was like across the board, they all switched from going one through 25, one through 18, one through 50 and so far. I think 50 was the highest ones with KOTOR in this one. But it was like that whole aspect of that push for, well, we got to make things accessible and seeing a big number on that cover. That's just people are going to balk. They're just not going to do it. And Marvel has a history of doing this. Like they've done that with their Venom series, their Spider-Man series and stuff. Venom's a great example because right now they got a Venom series. that's like a one through and they're all like all of a sudden like they get to issue number three and then all of a sudden it's 150. We've had 150 issues of Venom and now it's 151 and 152. It's like what the... And comics in the industry doing this is frustrating in and of itself. But at the time Dark Horse did this, it was that big push on accessibility and making Star Wars fresh and easy for everyone to come into. And it's like, that wasn't the point of when you were this deep in the story. It it confused a lot of people. They were like, wait, where what's going on? Why isn't this part of that line? Which it was, but we just changed the way it worked on the outside. So that was one of the things that really jumped out to me. And then as I was rereading this, you kind of get a sense throughout the story that there are moments where you felt like there was more of the plot going to be wrote out through like two or three comics. And then they hit this point where they were wrapping everything up and so I, I think it's like Sind, uh, Sind and, or no, no, it's Toon. Master Toon and Aslan Ra go looking for the princess. And they hint, you know, well, we're going to try to do everything we can. And then the next time we see them, everything that they did was told in a flashback. But the setup was like we were going to go with them and see it all first person. But then I was like, okay, no, we don't have enough time. We're wrapping this up. So we got to kind of force it. So I noticed there were a lot of things that felt like they were drawing us to this great moment. And then they started wrapping a lot of things up quick. And I was kind of wondering why, of course. But now, you know, looking back on it, it's obvious, you know, they were they were wrapping up this line and they were trying to do it as quick as they can. But there were so many things like like the fact that we never find out about C-3PO. Like there is a moment on one of these planets where there's a bunch of protocol droids, all C-3PO type models. And you could be like, OK, maybe one of those is C-3PO, because as far as we know, we don't know what happened to that goldenrod. <laughs> he just disappeared somewhere. But that was one of those things that really, I think, jumped out to me about this, because even when I was rereading it, I kept forgetting that this was the end. You know, I'm like, I'm getting towards the end. I'm like, oh, my God, this is building up so bad. And then. I realized, oh, we're just going to war, which is like another three or four issues. I mean, in the realm of comic books and how fast this wraps up, it's depressing because there's just so much going on here that you just you just feel like some of it kind of gets glossed over because it's just you just all the focus goes on crate at one point. And 
it's the little interactions with the rest of the cast and stuff that I feel like starts to falter because they're really wrapping up Cade's story. And while Cade's story is a galactic story, he's the heart of it. And so they really kind of focus on him. I find throughout this story arc, he becomes something that I have been wanting of Jedi for a long time. The Punisher Jedi. You know, the guy that goes around that's that's getting revenge and he's doing it for the good reasons. And I mean, for all intents and purposes, that is Kate at this moment. Kate is a one-man Sith-destroying wrecking ball. And he's just going through and wiping them out one at a time. And I like where we just jump right in on this story. I mean, that's probably one of the coolest things about this story is this is one that when you're done with it, you want to go both directions. Like, if you pick just this up, You'd probably go all the way back to the beginning because of how much action you're like, what am I missing? I got to go back to the beginning and and check this out. But at the same time, you're like, I got to know what happens next. So it's one of those things where you question like, where am I going to go? This is definitely one of the better of all the arcs. But again, it builds off of everything that came before it. Uh, and, And a question in the realm of Marvel, you know, we were talking about the whole Marvel thing. Did this series and even KOTOR benefit from the fact that they had the Johns? You had John Jackson Miller doing KOTOR, you had John Ostrander doing this one. And for all intents and purposes, they were there for almost the entire story. Marvel doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like Marvel has teams that they're swapping in and out. And that overthrew that we're getting in, in stories like Legacy and in stories like KOTOR, when you have one writer carrying it through, he's able to pick up on those things a lot easier than some of the other writers would. I mean, granted, you get some people out there like uh, the Aaron Alston, you get the Michael Stackpole, you get the Timothy Zahn, and they'll you know pay attention to other characters and stuff and work them in. But in this case, you've got John Jackson Miller, you've got John Ostrander, and these guys are, are known for these great big tales and taking and interweaving things. And I, I get back to that where I just, I really feel like that's the one thing that Dark Horse had that Marvel really hasn't got yet. They don't have a definitive one person that's really telling the Star Wars story. Like they do when it comes to a lot of their hero stories. You've got uh, Michael Bendis. You know, Michael Bendis is one of those guys. I, I love a lot of what he's doing. Slot, I'm hit or miss with him. But they're names that, that you know, on the type of story arcs that I'm following, like my Amazing Spider-Man or my Guardians of the Galaxy or Avengers, they get large chunks of the story and they're there for a long time so in the realm of dark horse to marvel that's definitely one of the things that really jumps out to me is that lack of one writer that's really committed to the story i would just like it if they would commit to one time like have a comic and know when the hell it takes place marvel (laughs) as opposed to saying uh well and and that was what the uh, the editor-in-chief said well we just prefer it that uh that readers create their own timelines well guess what I do. And it would help to know when the hell you intend these comics to take place relative to each other and the films. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. I think we're ready for some uh, spoilery goodness. I think so. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so we jump in here with The Fate of Dak, which is issue number 47. It's a single-issue arc that takes place during the events of Monster, which was issues 43 through 46, or volume 9 for those who've been following uh, with the trade paperbacks. At this point, Darth Crate 
is supposedly dead because apparently he was killed at the end of the Vector arc. Uh, he was killed by Darth Weirlock, but Weirlock has been pretending that he is still alive by keeping his body essentially in stasis and making it look as though, oh, well, don't worry, Crate will come back, he will heal, but I'll be in charge for now. So that machination is still going, but will finally start to come to a head. As we saw back in Monster, there's the big <gasps> moment of Crate's body being missing. We pick up here with the characters over the planet Dax slash Moncala slash Moncalamari, whatever you want to call it. And at this point, Weirlock has decided that he needs the Sith Imperial forces elsewhere. So, or Crate does, quote unquote. So, execute the final protocol. And basically the final protocol is for Darth Azard, who is a Quarren, ironically, and Vol Eisen, who is this bioweapons engineer, to release a final disease onto Dak. Because remember, because they assisted Gar Stasi and the Alliance Remnant, Darth Krayt had basically sentenced all Mon Cala, all Mon Calamari to death, to wipe out the species. And now they take that to the next degree, which is not trying to hunt them down and kill them, but simply releasing a disease on the planet into its oceans that kill in massive numbers. Early on in the story, there's an evocative image of Rogue Squadron coming down and trying to land, thinking they see a new landmass they didn't know existed before, and instead it's tons and tons of bodies. So Rogue Squadron gets into a brief battle with the Imperials who are there. We find that there are power struggles happening back on Coruscant because Morlish Veed, who is now the regent of the Sith Empire, the one that the public thinks of as the leader, he's sort of the figurehead, is going to be the one taking the blame for all of this that's happening, despite the fact that he had no hand in making the decision. And Gar Stasi decides to lead basically a, a rescue effort to evacuate as many people as he can from the planet, and in doing so, needs the help of the other Imperials, the ones that are loyal to Emperor Rowan Fell. And as you may recall, there was that big attack back in Monsters, so right now, he is incommunicado. He's part of that mission to go meet with the Jedi that's going to go so wrong and wind up with Maricia Fell being captured. So the... Uh, the Imperials who are loyal to Fell, they are not quite ready at this point under the under General Jaeger to actually commit to the battle. Uh, so Garstazi and the Alliance Remnant go in on their own. Uh, some Jedi join the fight as well, including their own squadron. Nat Skywalker, a.k.a. Bantha Rock, joins in. And there's just this massive evacuation effort. And up in space, the Sith Imperial forces are led by Darth Strife, who we've met before. Captain, or excuse me, Admiral Grail, who we've met before. And Moff Geist, uh, to bring in another of the high-level characters into the mix here, into the leadership. And they have sort of a split on what they want to do. The Sith, under Strife, specifically want to simply wipe out the uh, the people of Moncala because that simply is what Crate supposedly wants to have happen. Whereas the non-Sith Imperials are out there saying, well, yeah, but this is where Garstazi is. We have a chance to deal a crippling blow. We should do it. So there is some division amongst the Imperial ranks, not just between Veed and Weirlock, but also on the front lines. Uh, the battle continues until finally, uh, having now gotten word from Rowanfeld, Jaeger's able to jump his ships in to help lead the defense. And we see essentially a very small portion of the people of Moncala being able to be taken away to safety. The rest will wind up staying behind and dying. Uh, Asak Dan, who we had seen as a leader of the Mon Calamari Resistance, will now uh, be leaving his world as well to help lead them 
uh, wherever the diaspora winds up finding themselves, and Dak is effectively left a dead world. And we end the story as we dovetail with the end of Monster, when Darth Nil winds up contacting Weirlock, letting him know that, yeah, Darth Crate's body, it's missing. Dum, dum, dum! And the stage is set for the final arc, Extremes. Mm-hmm. There's such great dialogue in this one. But I gotta, you know, one thing that jumped out to me, Crate's the one that ordered all the Mon Cal dead, right? So why is Warlock pushing that farther? Do you think that that's just... The status quo, like the last thing we all heard from Kray was to do this, so I've got to complete that. So as long as I'm completing that, no one's going to question what's going on with Warlock? I mean, uh, with Kray himself? I would say to an extent, but also it, it seems as though he has very different ideas of what he wants to do with, quote-unquote, his one Sith as opposed to what Crate would have done. And I think a lot of it's telling on that first page where it's basically, we're not going to waste any more resources keeping you here. Just kill him and let's go. Mm-hmm. Which essentially becomes sort of their, uh, their their driving force of the one Sith side of this particular show. I think it's more a matter of convenience for Weirlock to say, we're going to continue following those orders. We're going to get done what we said we were going to get done. But we're going to do it my way because it's going to fit my plans better than this long, drawn-out you know, blockade and everything. Yeah. Well, i got to tell you, one thing that really jumped out to me in the art style here was the crossfires. Or, uh, yeah. The new X-Wings, the, the, the crossfires, I do not at all like the look of them. You know, I, I got to give props for props to do with the fact that the new canon films, they kept the X-Wing look with the uh, the Force Awakens X-Wings and stuff. I hated the fact that these are the replacement for X-Wings. They look nothing yes. like X-Wings. Yes, like, they're terrible designs. Yeah, you, you get Clawcraft later that the empire is using and i'm like dude those claw claps look like they're x-wings more than these things do like that drove me so nuts i mean the closest we get in legends to an actual x-wing at this point is the xj stealths that were used i mean by the time we get to this point it's like what did you do who was designing this ship like it's one of those car lines where, where for like a whole decade somebody gets a hold of it and just takes it and and it's like what do they call that? The 2.0 Mustang. <laughs> You're like, that's not a Mustang? What the hell? Uh, so so there was that thing. But I again, I get back to the dialogue. There were some great moments. Uh, you had mentioned when, when they're having that talk with the Imperial, uh, the true Imperial that's loyal to uh, Emperor Fell. And it's Stasi goes, of course I know that. I've been walking into and out of Imperial traps since the Battle of Kamas. This could be the day that you don't walk out. Only together, Dubastin and the Galactic Alliance have sufficient power to take on the Sith. If you are destroyed, what happens to the galaxy? Not even the death of Dak and all life on it is more important than the destruction of the Sith. We cannot pick every battle we fight, General Jaeger. Win or lose, live or die, some battles must be fought. If we choose to do nothing, then we kill hope. I will fight this fight, alone if I must, but I will fight. Join us! Were it my choice alone, I would. Without the command of my emperor, I cannot. I wish you well, Admiral Stasi. And that was a despairful moment, because you're just like, oh, crap, you know, the alliance has already fallen apart. But the way that Jaeger placed the fleet outside and came to their rescue later, like, there was some brilliance in the way that Fell's empire ran itself. And also, as we get further into the other issues, there's some things that really raise some questions for me, too, where I was just like, whoa, wait a minute. 
you're going to kill somebody because they're stepping out? Like, there, there is some really cool moments in here that it seems odd that we wait till the very last arc of this 1 through 50 to get these details out there. I mean, especially with the Imperial Knight side of things, I'm like, man, we could have, that would have been really cool to have known a long time ago. I don't know. So, so for me, there were a lot of those cool moments. You mentioned Bantha showing up. I like that. I don't know. For me, also, they would talk about the, uh, when they talk about the 20% of the people and they did all that they could to get them out. It's, uh, Gazi that had mentioned, you know, that was a perfect epitaph for the planet itself. They did all they could. Because when you think about it, the Mon Calmari, it was them rebelling against the one Sith that basically doomed them all. And they did everything they could to protect the galaxy. And in the end, it, it doomed them. I mean, that, also, like you said before, Nathan, I think that's one of the coolest things about what Dark Horse did was the fact that they were willing to take these gambles. And, you know, I mean, we see in the New Jedi Order, we see Coruscant get moved. We see one of the moons get wiped out. We see uh, Ithor get destroyed, which is another thing, too, about this this weapon that Ison is using. He mentions in, I think it's one of the next issues or something, he talks about, well, you know, we got Death Stars, uh, we got Galaxy Guns, but this one thing is so much better. And I'm thinking... But the Vong had something like that a long time ago. Why did you guys wait so long? Like, why didn't you guys get one of those shapers to come in and show you what, how they made that black stuff that killed Ithor? I mean, that's pretty much what they've got. Ew. I do like the epitaph, though. They did all they could because that that's partly, you know, what the Mon Cal did. But it's also, in essence, what the people who were trying to lead the evacuation did. They did all they could, but 80% of the population still wound up being left behind. I found that this, at the time, I mean, this was a shock. I remember reading this initially being like, holy Sith, so to speak, to believe that they would actually have gone this far. And you're right. This stands right up there with stuff like the destruction of Ithor that we saw back in the New Jedi Order. Uh, was that New Jedi Order or was that Legacy of the Force? It's been a long time. It was New Jedi Order. Yeah, it was uh, third book. New Jedi Order. But just to be able to see those types of things happen, that they were taking chances because they didn't have to worry about there being a film coming up that they would have to line up with or anything like that. They really could kind of do their own thing. And especially with Legacy, they were out sort of on their own uh, as far as storytelling goes. They could build on other stuff, but there was nothing else taking place after it yet that they had to conform to. What I find really interesting here, aside from the fact that, you know, it's the Sith creating a genocide. In essence, they've done that with the Jedi. And now the one Sith is doing it with Iman Calamari, but also caught in the crossfire all the, are the Waladons, the Moappa, and the Quarren. Mm-hmm. And we've got Darth Azard, who is a Quarren, initially questioning Weirlock, saying, uh, what are the other species, Lord Weirlock? The Quarren have been allies, uh, and the other species largely neutral. And the response is basically, no one is neutral. They will share the fate of the Mon Calamari. The Quarren's help has been nothing. Allow them to flee, but offer them no aid. This is Lord Crate's will, which, of course, is a bunch of BS. And later, we see that the the Alliance isn't sympathetic either. Uh, this is very much the whole issue of, you know, if you are a local who is willing to assist the enemy, eventually when the tide turns, you are going to be left hung out to dry. Um, because we have uh, the point at which there's a conversation between Garstazi and Joram Bay. And Bay says, we've got a delegation of Quarren demanding their species take precedence over Waladons and the Moappa. To which Stasi answers, huh, they should ask their Sith friends to take them. They get every tenth ship and they're lucky to have that. They try to take more, shoot to kill. I'm not playing games with collaborators. And that was a really hard line for Stasi to take. I actually found that kind of a shock to see Stasi taking that kind of line. But again, it's a time of war. You're trying to save as many people as you can and... He's giving priority to those who weren't essentially 
aiding and abetting the enemy, uh, even if not being enemy combatants. This series, in a lot of ways, and a lot of the stuff that we got with the latter days of uh, the Legends continuity, really feels like it's very much informed by the war on terrorism, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and such, just the way that, you know, we saw uh, hints of things like, you know, the Vietnam War back in early Star Wars stuff, uh, or the Cold War. But the idea that there are hard decisions to be made in war and a lot of those types of decisions get, get put together within a Star Wars context in stories like this. Definitely a shocker of an issue. And the fact that it was called The Fate of Dak, I think when it first came out, we were a little bit concerned of what that might mean. But I think even at the time, and this was, shoot, this is what, 2010, give or take? I think a lot of us were expecting the last issue to address Dak to somehow have a triumphant rising up against the one Sith and the Mon Calamari will be okay. And instead, it's 20% of them are alive. They are now essentially, as Spock would say, an endangered species um, <laughs> to cross continuities there. So, yeah, fantastic issue, but whoo, kind of gut-wrenching at the same time. And it was a great ending, too, where you get the look on Warlock's face. It's like, he's got a, like, I don't even know. It almost looks like he farted and some slid out. <laughs> Uh, he is Darth Shart. Yes. Yeah, I mean, dude, he's got a weird look. Like it's it's not like he's angry. It's not it's almost like shocked, but it's just the best capture of his face. I got kudos to Jan for whatever emotion she was capturing there cuz it's definitely captured. Again, I channel uh Darth Ernest P. Warrow with a Okay. Now I'm really dating myself. Billy Joel and Ernest P. Warrow. Yeah. All right, that brings us into Extremes. It is a three-issue story, issues 48, 49, and the final issue of the regular series, number 50. It picks up after the events of Monster and after the events of The Fate of Dak, which again were concurrent. We start out with Weirlock going to Korriban to meet with Nil, and they're basically checking out the armor that's sitting there, the uh, Vong armor from Crate that's just kind of hanging in the suspension by itself with Crate himself gone. And we do get the confirmation here from Weirlock that as far as Weirlock is concerned, he killed Crate. I mean, it certainly looked like he killed Crate before, but he's flat out saying here that he has killed Crate. So where is he? Um, this was not an, supposed to be some kind of extreme damage, and he really wasn't quite dead. Um, that was a lie. Uh, we jump very quickly to the planet of Agamar, where there was that deal going down between the Jedi and the loyal Imperials, uh, the ones loyal to Rowan Fell, and discover that Aslan Ray, who is an Imperial Knight now, and her former master, who's a Jedi, Rasi Tomb, have survived. And there's this question of how can they best serve what they need to do, given the fact that Maricia Fell, who of course is Rowan Fell's daughter, the heir to the Empire, so to speak, has been captured. We then go to Coruscant to see what's happening with her. She's being brought to Coruscant by Moth Yeg, who, of course, is the former husband, the ex-husband of Nina Calixta slash Morrigan Cord, though he doesn't know of her Morrigan Cord identity. Uh, he is the father of Gunnar Yeg, who did take part in that battle as part of Skull Squadron. Uh, Maricia tries to appeal to his better angels, so to speak, to get him to let her go and rejoin Emperor Fell, but he's not having it. Uh, there is some power play going on between who is going to take Maricia Fell into custody. The Imperial 
non-Sith want to hang on to her. Uh, Morlish Veed comes out, Nina Calixta comes out with this idea that they're going to take him uh, into custody, but instead the Sith demand to take her into custody uh, under the care of Darth Havoc who we'll learn more about a little while later in the arc. Uh, we do have some questioning of Nina Calixta. There's sort of that question of, is she going to be found out? Are they going to realize she was the one who betrayed the Sith Imperials and warned Rowan Fell's contingent that the attack on Agamara was coming? But no, she's able to pass it off as, hey, you know, I was in the Undercity trying to gain intel as to whether or not Crate was dead or alive, just like you ordered. So, of course, Nina Calixta, the actual traitor, is the one who is tasked with hunting down who is the traitor. Very convenient, that, for is, her. Is, is that like a MacGuffin? Like, that? that's a plot that I see often. Like, is there a word for that? <laughs> uh, it's a trope, I guess. Okay, the there we go. I, I knew you'd know. <laughs> so we jump to the planet Daluge, and at this point, Cade Skywalker and the crew of the Minoc, Jiraiyasin, Delia Blue, they have heard about what happened at Dak. They know that Vol Eisen was the bioengineer who was in charge of of the project that wound up releasing the weapon to kill 80% of the population. So he is out for blood. Cade is out for blood. They're fighting the Sith there on Deluge on a tip from Naxi Skrieger, who of course has been an informant throughout the series, trying to find Vol Eisen and kill him because Cade has made it his personal mission, just like it was his personal mission to kill Crate. Now it's his personal mission to kill Vol Eisen and punish him for what happened. Only it turns out that Eisen uh, had a lab there, but he's... Long gone by now, unfortunately. Uh, they take off out of there. Wolf Sazen is with them as well, I should note here, and does have some objections to the fact that Cade essentially cuts the lower legs off of a Sith, questions him, and instead of giving him a quick death or taking him to safety, leaves him behind when the whole place explodes. We jump very briefly to the planet of Naptu, where we see that because one of the huts who's there, Azim and Jiliak, Ataru assisted with Mon Calamari refugees on Dasucha that basically the Empire, again, in the form of Darth Azard and Vol Eisen, are there to wipe them out for their complicity. Lots of bombs dropped in the ocean. We have uh, uh, the drop of another bioweapon to kill that planet off. But Azim is able to get out essentially a distress call. Uh, that goes out to his uncle Vito on Nalhutta, which is going to help propel some of the rest of this story as we go. We also find that, again, there is sort of some dissension in the Imperial ranks. Yeg is the one who is actually, I think it's Yeg, who winds up being part of the team that's uh, uh, handling the attack. Uh, yeah, Moff Yeg is, is the one handling the attack. And uh, as ships are trying to escape, refugee ships, peaceful ships, not warships, of course... The Imperial, Darth Router, who is now in charge of Skull Squadron over Gunner Yeh, orders Skull Squadron to start shooting down these evacuating civilian ships. And Gunner, against what she would like, goes ahead and, and orders them, yes, you need to follow his orders, you need to shoot down those ships. We even find some questioning going on with Joker Squad that we haven't seen in quite a while, uh, Sergeant Harakas and his group down on the planet, also leading some of the killing on Napdu. We finally then get a final two scenes that set up where we're going to go next. We have the crew of the Minoc in space, and Cade Skywalker getting a vision of the Force Ghost of Luke and having a conversation with him, which is overseen by... Uh, Jiraiya, which honestly has one of my favorite moments in the entire thing, because he's he's basically yelling at Luke. No way, that'd be too easy, you know, just to tell him where Vol Eisen is. Jedi like to do things the hard way. Maybe another couple planets will die. Blah 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 blah. And then you know, Jiraiya's looking at him like, "Are you nuts?" And he's like, "You can't see him, can you?" 
Yeah. And both Jiraiya and Luke answer, no. And then as they're taking off, uh, Jiraiya says, you know, I thought you told me you'd laid off them death sticks. Not on death sticks. Not crazy either. I love the under his voice, under his breath, not crazy either thing. <laughs> um, but they get word from Jewel, who has been the hut that they've worked with previously in this series quite a bit, um, to basically ask them to come to now Hutta because she has received the information from uh, Azim through Vito, and it's going to be Cade's team that'll be taking part in the hunt for Vol Eisen on behalf of the Huts momentarily. We also get a final scene, the second of those two final scenes on Korriban, where Darth Nil is hunting to try to find Crate and to try to find Darth Talon, who has disappeared along with Crate's body, only we see Darth Talon make her way through some catacombs, and sure enough, who's down there? Darth Crate. His rebirth in theory, has begun. All is going as he has foreseen. He has no Vong armor anymore, but this weird, emaciated, zombie-esque-looking crate is apparently alive and well. Bum, 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 as we head to part two. Yes. There's so much stuff. So, with this one, one of the things that jumped right out to me was while Warlock and Nil are talking about Talon. Nil tells Warlock, you know, Talon knows she was inside the chamber, she was guarding the door, but that doesn't make sense because it, like, it's like, okay, so she was in the room when Crate came alive or they both showed up. Crate was already missing and then Nil left and she was going to watch the door. And when he came back, she was gone. Like that dialogue confused me. I was like, wait, what the hell's going on here? Another observation, too, is when we get back to Agamar, I noticed that a lot of the one Sith had very organic-looking saber hilts. It made me wonder if, if John was planning something with that, or if I missed it, because it just can't be coincidental, can it, that every one of the one Sith have an organic-looking type lightsaber? None of them look metal. They all look like they were grown somehow. Uh, so that was something that stood out to me. And then there was... That moment I was talking about with Ray, where you had mentioned it too, where she wants to go after the princess who's captured by the Sith, and she goes, my duty demands I try, Master. And I found that was interesting, because her duty is as Imperial Knight, and the Imperial Knights basically were a spawn-off of Luke's Jedi Order, and one thing Luke was known for saying a lot of is, do or do not, there is no try. So the fact that that's part of their duty, I thought that was kind of interesting, the fact that she would word it like that. There is the part where uh, Moff Yeg is being talked to by the princess and she tries to talk him into letting her go and he's like, I can't, my daughter will be punished. I thought that was cool because Yeg is a type of character that sometimes you feel like he's just in a bad position whereas most of the time you just think, okay, all these Imperials are just they're D-bags. You know, you get that feeling like if you're on the Sith side, you've got to be bad. Like, why would you be on that side? But then, now there's suddenly this human angle to it. It's like, oh... He's there because he really has no choice because his daughter and, and, and we see it with his daughter where she does the same thing where she's like, follow out the orders. They are a military minded family. So they're definitely locked in at this point. And the family is definitely that retaliation part. I mean, the Empire was known back in the day for, you know, you screwed up. We take out your whole family. Well, that's still going on. So that was kind of interesting as well. The other thing, too, is when Darth Havoc introduces himself to the princess, he does. It, he says he's an inquisitor serving Darth Krayt. I found it interesting that he mentions himself as the Inquisitor. Like, that's a position. You know, I mean, that's like, that's not like a duty. Like, he's a Sith Lord, but he's also an Inquisitor. Like, I, again, these were these little, little random things I was picking up on. I'm like, that's an interesting choice of words. Like, you know, I'm, I'm here to interrogate you, I would get. But no, he's an Inquisitor. Okay. Which we'll get more to him later. But getting to Morgan Cord, and I know I've, I've mentioned this probably every single of the 
10 or so of these arcs we've had. What in the hell is her end game? I don't understand what she is playing at. All the way through this, like she started the war, she's continuing the war, she's trying to stop the war, she's keeping it going. What the f- I'm just so lost with her motivation and what is driving her. It's I keep coming back because I want to figure it out. I'm like, clearly Ostrander has wrote this in here and I must have missed something because like it just doesn't make sense. It's like watching The Prestige or or Inception where I'm like, was he awake or asleep? I just don't know. So that was one of those things that just it, every time I get to her, I'm just like back and forth. like, I don't understand her game. Uh, and in a great dialogue, which is going to continue, I'll reference it again, Kate is continuing to argue with every single person that calls him a Jedi. Every time they see his way, I am not a Jedi! Like, <laughs> and it's going to get even funnier the way he plays it. I just, I, I love the fact that he gets so upset. And it'll play out well. Katie continues to argue with everyone, like I said. Also turns out that Ison is the type of person that believes in knowledge is power, but he doesn't believe in sharing his power. So the secrets to this toxin and everything, it's all on him. I mean, how convenient is that for the galaxy? <laughs> like, this could have been really bad. Like, he could have uploaded it to the Google Drive and every Sith Lord out there could have had it. But no, this guy's selfish. Okay, I, I, I feel you. There was also a great moment where Cade has Sin blow the place, and Master Sazen, he wasn't too keen on it. He's like, you've left that Sith helpless. And Cade's reply is, for my credits, no Sith that lives is ever helpless. I only face my enemies once. I'm like, damn! And that's that aspect of him being the Punisher that I just love. I'm like, dude, he's not playing anymore. He is out for blood. He's going to kill every one of these guys. This is also the issue where we do see Skull Squadron uh, flying those claw crafts. So I love that moment. You know, the dialogue going on with, with Cade's sister, Gunner. And that was one of those aspects, too. Like, I kept waiting for that story arc to really pay off. So... That's the aspect of feeling like some of this was kind of rushed, like almost like Delray or not Delray, but the Dark Horse or the Lucasfilm end knew that they were wrapping this stuff up. And originally they had longer that they were planning on doing. It just felt like, okay, well now we got to rush this into five issues. I know you guys are going to go 30 and really drag this up, but we just got to, we got to hit it hard, hit it fast, get in and get out. There was a lot of those little things. Like when Luke shows up, you know, that the aspect he's like, you're about to have this big trial, this great trial coming. I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Like Luke's showing up. Like Luke doesn't just show up. You know, when Luke comes, it's like it's the Obi Wan spirit or the or, or the you know where's Yoda? Luke spirit. You know, like this is the big stuff. Luke's here. You know, <laughs> you can't just brush this aside. This is Luke Skywalker, and he is here because you have a destiny. And the aspect that the destiny keeps playing forward, that was cool. It's going to pay off really big here in an issue or two. Not sure I have much to add for this issue. It really feels like this issue is all launching things for the next couple. It's catching us up with where the different characters are. And at this point, there's a lot of different groups of characters to keep up with. We gotta keep up with the Jedi, we gotta keep up with the uh, the Imperials that are loyal to Fel, the Sith Imperials who are loyal to Weirlock slash Crate, and how they're dividing up. So there's sort of the Sith and the non-Sith within that. We have to keep track of the crew of the Minoc and their allies, and what about the Jedi who are with them, or the ones who are questioning whether or not they should be with them? What about um, Skull Squander and Joker Squad? It really definitely does get that seeming as though maybe there's a, a bit of a rush to the end here. In that, I feel like across extremes, there's not a lot of introspection, there's not a lot of character moments that we would think of as pure character development, so much as it's all like action, action, action. It's very much sort of the return of the Jedi of Legacy. 
in essence. It, it is the final climactic chapter before, of course, war, which is what, I guess, Force Awakens or something. Mm -hmm. But because of that, it is both nice to see the cameos of Skull Squadron and Joker Squad, but at the same time, kind of frustrating that we don't get to see more of either of them in this arc. So it's sort of a blink and you'll miss them. Hey, they're there. They're still kind of doing their thing, but they're not integral to this major event. And we don't have enough pages to necessarily devote to every single character. I do agree that it does seem like maybe this would have been carried out in a longer arc had this been otherwise. As for Morgan Cord Nina Calixta, I was I'm expecting that we'll find out someday that there was already slated to be like a spin-off of this, even if it was just a one shot, that would have had it had like, I don't know, maybe nine maybe Morgan Cord is like on a shuttle away from Coruscant and and Nina Calixti sits down next to her and starts like talking about soap and she's like and this is how I met Nina Calixta and then they set up Imperial <laughs> Club and all these rules for it uh, anyway oh well, before we get to the next issue oh my god that's great that last page where we get the big reveal about crate one other thing you know getting back to that aspect Nils talking about Talon when we see the first panel it you almost think it's nil, but if you really look, it's actually Talon. You can see her head trail, uh, head tails and stuff, and you've got Krayat talking in the background. But what doesn't make sense to me, okay, she was in the room. The question of whether or not she was in the room before Krayat's body disappeared, right? But this implies that she is searching for Krayat on her own, that she left to look for him, and he goes, yes, he is coming. Lord Nil has found his way into these tombs, but it doesn't matter. He will find you, but only when I allow it. You are the faithful one, patient. You have long desired power. What you know, what you sensed, will grant you the power you seek. So she sensed something, and that's why she's come this way. Then she goes, they know, Lord, Warlock and Nail." Your secret will be revealed. It is only a matter of time, Darth Krayat. And that's where he says everything's going to happen as I've foreseen. Do you get the sense that she, this is the first time she's came to him or that she went with him and now she's coming back? I get the sense that she's, that she's been there previously, that she's essentially coming back from some errand or something, um, checking to see what's going on and realizing that Nil is coming down there and she's just returning to him because she's, she doesn't have any shock or anything at seeing him and she addresses him by name immediately. So I would say, yeah, I would say that. Although the one thing about that last panel that gets me, I, I have a hard time with it now because and I don't know why it entered my head, but it does now every single time that I'm looking at that panel. I immediately uh, imagine him dancing to Thriller. <laughs> and it just, it just causes me to be, uh, it, it, uh, uh, huh? because he, he he's, he's, he's pretty roughed up. Um, that brings us to the penultimate issue of the series, issue number 49, Extremes Part 2, where we find that Gar Stasi uh, has taken many of the evacuees from Mancal slash Dak, along with uh, some of his own people who are injured in the battle, to the planet Utapau, where the current Maidon, who is running the show, is willing to essentially take them in as refugees, at least for the moment. We find that back on Bastion, we see the arrival of Rassi Toom and Aslan Ray, as Mark mentioned, with basically just a flashback of how they tried to catch Mara CFL, only to find that the ship she was on had already taken off, and they didn't have the ability to actually get aboard, so they had to race for their lives, etc., etc., at which point Antares Draco, who of course is in love with Mara CFL, and at one point in this arc, I think in this issue is called Draco Antares, they get his name backwards, is, is incredibly angry over the idea that they let Sia be taken 
prisoner, or as a prisoner, let her get taken away instead of dying in trying to get to her, even though the fact that they didn't die is the only thing that's going to give them a clue of what to do now. They tell Rowan Fell about what's happened to Sia. The fact that she has major Imperial codes is of concern. So in essence, Rowan Fell has to has to essentially decide that either she has to be rescued or she has to be stilled, as he called it. She has to be silenced. So find her, rescue her, or find her and kill her. She can't be left in the enemy's hands. That jumps us to now Hutta, where Naxi Skrieger shows up again, in this case, uh, now working for Vito. Uh, Vito Angelak Ataru. I always have trouble with that last name uh, there. And Cade, actually, it's Cade and his whole team on the monogas. It's Cade and Sazen and Jiraiya and Delia show up, ex- oh, and R2-D2, except the door is basically shut on everybody but Cade. And Cade winds up talking to both Jewel and Vito, and he's hired, as I mentioned, with the idea that, hey, Vol Eisen just did all this stuff. Just yeah, He and the one Sith just wind up wi- wiping out what happened on Naptu. And he did a bunch of stuff at Dasucha. So you're already going after Vol Eisen, but we want you to go after Vol Eisen under our auspices. So it is one of our agents officially who winds up taking him down. And therefore, that vengeance, that need for a public display of going after who did this to a hut has been sated. And in order to do this, they've basically figured out, they've learned that Garstazi is there on Utapau, and the Huts have let slip to the Sith Imperials that that is the case, using him essentially as bait with the idea that it won't just be any one Sith that show up to go after Garstazi, surely Vol Eisen will be among those who do so, and that will draw him in and allow Cade to somehow take him out. It's a dangerous gamble, and Cade is going to keep most of this a secret from his crew because of the whole issue of Stasi being bait and so forth, and how uh, they would find it distasteful, perhaps. We get a little bit of a hint, um, kind of a fast reveal, you might say, in a couple of scenes. We see one scene in which Ganner Krieg and Antares Draco are talking about Sia being gone and what he needs to do about it and how he feels about it and everything. And he's looking, Antares is, that is, at the holocron of his former master, uh, who is uh, Master Eshkar Nin, uh, who at one point had violated his oath as an Imperial Knight, apparently was the one who killed Maricia Fell's mother slash Rowan Fell's wife, and Antares Draco was the one sent to kill him, and he believes that he had managed to do so. He's looking for clues in that holocron about how he could be like a wasp to carry death into the palace to go after Maricia Fell and try to save her. Um, he has a plan he's going to present to the Emperor to do that. But... Right around the same time on Korriban, Darth Havoc is torturing Sia for information, and she recognizes him as Eshkarnin. So, very quick reveal of, oh, hey, this is, this is who killed the mom, and oh, yeah, this is Eshkarnin. This is the former master of Antares Draco, and oh, by the way, on the very next page, dun-dun, he's Darth Havoc. He's the one that's torturing her. I wonder if that was something that was meant to be seeded a little bit earlier or seeded over more issues before the reveal. But suffice to say, he intends to break her to get information. She is trying to resist torture, even to the point of pulling his lightsaber to her at one point, trying to put it under her chin and ignite it, except he stops it from being able to activate, um, so she can't commit suicide that way. That's a trope that we'll see throughout this, um, that a similar thing happens in the next issue with someone trying to commit suicide via uh, lightsaber. And the plan begins very, very quickly with Antares Draco dressed and with face paint as, or I guess maybe tattoos, removable tattoos, as a Sith arriving on Korriban 
with two prisoners, supposedly, Ganner Krieg and Shado Vow, of course, the Jedi that's been part of the story for a very long time here. And basically bringing those prisoners in, you know, take me to where we're taking the prisoners, take me to where we're going to interrogate them, assuming that that's going to be where he's going to be able to find Marcia Fell as well. Meanwhile, while they're infiltrating Vol Eisen and Darth Azar in a secret lab on Utapau, how convenient, are working out exactly how they're going to wind up wiping out the Alliance Remnant, and the people of Utapau who are there, particularly given the fact that Utapau has, like, the regular Utapauans, but then they have the Utai. You have a couple different species there that are dominant, uh, or not dominant, but they're sentient, and as such, he needs to make sort of a perfect biological weapon, and he creates one that essentially, it's sort of the ultimate biological weapon. It's a virus that has the ability to essentially be suitable for any species in the galaxy. It will constantly adapt itself. So all they have to do is dump it in the water supply and the planet gets wiped out. But they don't want to leave that to chance so that it's just a disease that goes after Garstasi because if he doesn't catch it as one of the first people to catch it, he's going to hightail it out of there. So instead, they are also going to have someone uh, try to be an assassin to take out Garstasi before the virus can get to him. The virus is more of a punishment to Utapau uh, and a statement on behalf of the Sith than anything else. The Minot crew meet with, what's her name, uh, Anna Antilles, so they can have a little bit of a, a business transaction going. Cade, knowing that there's going to be assassins going after Garstasi, lets it be known to Wolf that he knew this all along. And Wolf's like, you know, you're going to warn Stasi, or I'm going to. Um, so rather than necessarily actually warning Stasi, he lets Jiraiya and Blue know because they're with some of Stasi's people right outside Stasi's uh, little office there because they're trying to make a little deal, you know, a weapons deal type thing. And that way, at least someone is on guard in case of an assassination attempt without revealing that Stasi is essentially the bait to bring in Ison. And we get a final page that's really just basically Darth Nil pumping himself up, you know, you know, I'm a powerful Nagai, another species I don't think we've seen in canon yet. I'm gonna find Crate and I'm gonna find Talon, gonna kick her ass. And we get what I think was kind of one of those depressing final lines of the story, not even in the script of the story, but just in sort of the comic itself. It says, next, the end of an era, and the stage is set for part three and the final issue. Oh, man, there's so many things in this issue and the next one that just jump out. Uh, one of the first ones, of course, is Bastion, you know, one hell of a fortress world, which, you know, this is a Legends only thing. I, I'm, I'm waiting. We don't have anything in canon for Bastion, right? I mean, Bastion was basically a a... Thrawn world where he had set up the Empire of the Hand and a new Empire kind of thing and it became like one of the more defended places like but that wasn't ever actually the Imperials or was it like I can't for the life of me I mean I know that the Remnant ended up putting their capital there so it depends on your point of view right so Bastion appears in Legends and is a major story point for Legends, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for canon, so far, technically it hasn't been mentioned, but there's sort of an asterisk by that, because it was mentioned in one of the beginner games, 
The Force Awakens beginner game that was released by Fantasy Flight Games for the RPG. It doesn't have an RPG line. It's just a little standalone beginner game that's like the beginner games of their regular lines, Edge of the Empire, Age of Rebellion, Force and Destiny. And we've been told that the games are sort of meant to be authentic Star Wars experiences rather than being part of one continuity or another. And we see that with most of Fantasy Flight stuff because it blends canon and legends without really differentiating between the two. But since that one is the Force Awakens beginner game and specifically ties into the setting and the events of the movie, that's one of the ones that could probably be thought of as probably being canon, or at least being closer to canon than much of its ilk, and it mentions Bastion. Aha! Uh-huh. So... It's, it's kind of up in the air. But remember what they said, you know, like John Jackson Miller and them saying that they're not really going to be reinventing the galaxy per se. You know, if existing yeah. planets and stuff are there, they'll use them. So the idea that it would exist, I don't think is too far-fetched. It just, you know, does it bear any resemblance at all to the Legends version? We have no idea. I would think yes. I mean, because it, it was introduced in, uh, what, Visions of the Future, Spectre of the Past, which was a Timothy Zahn novel. So, you know, and everything about it, it was a Thrawn-esque thing. So I would think if anyone's going to bring it back to the forefront, it's going to be on himself uh or, or we're gonna get it with the plot with thrawn but yeah i mean that was one of the things that jumped out too i love the interaction with jules uh in the huts you know when cage shows up he has to prove himself because as she said clearly i've i've over talked to you uh and then i like the fact that cade turns it on him later and he's just like yeah you know we'll we'll go ahead and go through with this you know if so much as if you know jewel vouches for you he's <laughs> just like oh, you know well fine two can play at this game it was also interesting that Cade felt that, you know, leveraging the world was extreme. You know, we're going to get revenge, but this entire world could die. And it even comes back at him from Sazen. And I like the fact that, you know, Cade doesn't put up with Sazen's stuff anymore. He's like, I'm going. You either come or, or get left. He's like, this is happening. You're either coming or not, bro. And so, like, and he admits it later. He's like, yeah, I know. It was a bad deal, but it was the only choice I had. Uh, and there was a great moment, too, where uh, the princess grabs Darth Havoc's lightsaber and holds it up to her jaw. And she's willing and is going to ignite it and kill herself. But Havoc basically grabs her in the force and won't let her. I thought that was a great moment. And then, you know, I would mentioned it before, but when Draco shows up, and the princess calls him a traitor. She goes, you were sent to kill your former master for abandoning his vows as an imperial knight. You were supposed to destroy Ekar Nin. Talk about extreme. You serve the imperial order for life. Now, granted, we find out later that he was responsible for killing the empress. But at that point, I, I mean, it's, it's not really mentioned. So I was kind of like, oh, that's an interesting. That's, that's interesting. The fact that the fact that she says that. He was supposed to kill him for abandoning his vows as an Imperial Knight. Like, the the princess part, the Empress part's in the next issue, but this is actually mentioned right here. And I was just like, whoa, holy cow. So, so just abandoning your vows is enough to get you a death sentence? Granted, there's more to it, but again, it gets that aspect of clearly there was more backstory that, that Ostrander had in place. And they just started to wrap things up. And so those little details kind of didn't quite line up right. Uh, and then another one... Anna Antilles, was it ever confirmed that she was a descendant of Wedge or not? I mean, I know in one aspect, she don't have to be, but this story did do a lot of that. So I kept wondering, like, was she supposed to be a Wedge Antilles relative? You know, I honestly don't recall if they ever clarified that. So it's probably not. <laughs> and the other thing that really jumped out to me is when Cade and Wolf, when they find Azard and Ison, Wolf is ready to attack. He's like, 
it's it's time like he goes on point i was like okay so he's all about you know like he's worried about how kate is operating but when the moment comes to strike he is all for attacking he just it's got to be at that right moment and again i'd mentioned before uh isson calls kate a jedi and of course it's that running joke it's a chew i'm not a ah skip it <laughs> like at this point he's just over it but i love it it's just like all the way through he's just like come on ah are you kidding me people <laughs> not a jedi damn it I like this issue. Again, it's very much sort of action-packed, or it's it's pushing the story along. It's propelling it very, very quickly. Again, pacing is one of my things. That's why I adore Rogue One and Force Awakens and Return of the Jedi and so forth. I found that there were some interesting bits to this. I did think that, as you mentioned before, it was it seemed like they were zipping right very quickly ahead with the whole thing with Aslan Ray and Rassi Toom coming back and handling that through sort of a flashback as opposed to actually seeing that happen. But otherwise, I thought it was a pretty solid issue. I think that the, again, the, the Eshkar Nin thing kind of came out of nowhere. So kind of cool to see it. But at the same time, there's sort of a, uh, well, wait a second, you know, was that supposed to be seated at a different point? Were we supposed to get more hints of this before he revealed himself as Havoc? But it's a cool twist to have it turn out to be that the guy who's torturing Maris CFL is her love interests, uh, former master, and someone who killed her mother, and so on. I mean, it's that whole thing with Star Wars where the family connections, you know, it's all connected, as to, as the MCU would say. In this case, the family connections a lot of times are very dysfunctional, screwed up. There's death involved, there's tragedy involved, and so forth. I do love her lines. They almost feel like an oath. When she draws the lightsaber to her and puts it underneath her chin, she says, I will not break, I will not bend, I will not serve. Farewell, traitor. And I wonder if the whole I will not break, I will not bend, I will not serve was part of some type of oath or part of some type of training where she would say it that way. Then again, she is saying things in kind of a... a, a is, it, again, it goes back to the whole Star wars thing of sometimes there's ways to say things that just seem a little bit odd compared to the way that we would normally say things. You know, like, and Nin is who I was, Darth Havoc is who I am. She says, fool is who you are. <laughs> eh, okay, sure. I guess because of the way that he said the lines, that's... That's, that's a fine line delivery, perhaps. But that was a pretty cool scene. And again, this sort of brings up this question in my mind about this bioweapon. And, you know, it's... I think about this sort of, again, in sort of the historical, contextual terms of, of modern day and history of real life. And it strikes me that... I'm surprised we haven't seen more of this kind of weapon in Star Wars because on Earth, you know, in real life... The primary reason why you don't have, like, a super virus get released as a biological weapon in battle, part of it is the whole mutually assured destruction thing, yeah. right? You don't release because you won't be able to control or contain it, so you don't know who all it's going to kill, and it will very quickly probably wind up going around the world and probably wind up killing everyone uh, or decimating even those who unleashed it. So they don't want to do it. We create these things like crazy, tons and tons of them, but don't tend to unleash them. And that's with the concern of, you know, air travel, sea travel, and the fact that now you can get from one part of the world to another. This is not like, you know, Christopher Columbus and the Spanish explorers, uh, the various other Spanish explorers showing up in the New World carrying remnants of things like bubonic plague that the Native Americans had no immunity to because they'd never ran into those diseases before and having it wipe out a massive portion of the population, even though the people who accidentally brought it dormant in their systems were fine. It's not that sort of thing anymore because of the ability to get from continent to continent very quickly. 
Well, with Star Wars, it's kind of a different dynamic because whereas trying to contain the release of something like that on one part of a planet would be very difficult, they don't tend to handle space travel in the same way that we would handle going from continent to continent, jumping on a plane. Because in theory, if you release one of these on a planet in Star Wars, you do run the risk of somebody who's infected being on a ship and winding up going to another planet and spreading it. But at the same time, if they've got a blockade in place and are able to stop that travel, which seems to be easier in Star Wars than it would be for just stopping airlines in the real world, um, thank you TSA and such, it suggests that you could actually unleash one of these on a planet and contain it so that it would wipe out the entire planet. That the hesitation of using a biological weapon that we see as mutually assured destruction would either not exist in Star Wars or not exist to the same extent because they would be targeting planets, not regions within a planet. And that is a terrifying thing. And that's why there's such concern about the idea of terrorists getting their hands on these type of weapons because if a terrorist has no state for us to retaliate against or to stop, and if a terrorist has the mindset of, well, if I die for my cause, I will go to heaven and be in paradise, etc., etc., so I am willing to do so. What is to stop someone in that position from releasing such a thing? It's the closest equivalent to the Sith Imperials doing this, and it strikes very close to home in this age of the war on terrorism, uh, ISIS, and so forth. So that's always been a fascinating thing to be seeing those types of weapons and how Star Wars uses it, because, you know, we won't have a Death Star in real life. We won't have a galaxy gun in real life, but a virus, a disease... Yeah. Yes, that is very possible. Yeah, absolutely. It does make me wonder, too, the whole aspect of the mom and the way he, you know, they were talking about leaving the order. If that was something they added, you know, like, oh, let's let's make let's make Draco's master kill, the, you know, the Empress. And like they'd already had that other line because that's the one that really jumps out to me. It's like you're going to be killed for leaving the order. Like <laughs> that seems very extreme. Now you're going to be killed for killing the Emperor's wife. That makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, if I broke my vows, my wife would probably kill me. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. All right. On that note, we come to the final regular issue of my favorite Star Wars comic series, Star Wars Legacy with Extremes Part 3, issue number 50. We pick up on Korriban, and yes, the infiltration has worked because Antares Draco, as a Sith, is able to reach where Maricia Fell is being held prisoner. He is dragging along Ganner Krieg and Shadovau as his prisoners, and together they manage to free her. Though uh, she is pretty pissed because, yeah, she knows that Darth Havoc slash Eshkarnin is alive. Though it does turn out that Antares didn't spare him. Antares actually did think that his master was dead. It's just that his master managed to survive. So this isn't really on him. Though the fact that he has such darkness inside him, as we've seen hinted at a few times, which is not necessarily totally a bad thing for an Imperial Knight, he's not a Jedi after all, is going to play into his interactions with his former master here. We jump back into what we're seeing on Utapau with the arms deal going down with Garstazi and Antilles talking with uh, the crew of the Mina with uh, Jariah and Delia. And sure enough, that's when one of the guards pulls a blaster and Jariah is able to take him out. And there's sort of the realization of, wait, you were prepared for that. Did you have some kind of a uh, warning ahead of time? <laughs> no, no, you'll never. It's, you know, if you don't want to make another enemy 
you know, don't try to play on an Antilles. And he's like, oh, on my honor, Chiksa, uh, you'll never catch me lying to you. And I thought that was one of the, you know, just a traditional Jiraiya type of attitude. And meanwhile, we have Cade and Wolf managing to find the laboratory of Vol Isen, where Darth Azard also is. They bust in, and while Cade goes after Isen, Wolf goes after Azard. Even as Mara CFL, Gander Krieg, Antares Draco, Shado Val, they're trying to fight their way out from amongst the Sith trying to stop them. And eventually Antares Draco gets separated as he's covering the escape of the others. After he says a, a fond goodbye to Maricea, he winds up face-to-face -face with his former master, Eshkar Nin. And they do combat as well, even as, talk about a lot of lightsaber duels happening at the same time, even as Darth Nil finds Darth Talon, and they wind up in a lightsaber battle, which is very quickly ended with Darth, Darth Krait coming in, revealing himself and basically convincing Nil very quickly to follow him still. Like, I'm alive, I understand that, you know, it's the Sith way to kill me and take the power, but, you know, I am uber-powerful, you're gonna work with me again. And he shows Nil some of what he has been working on, or he and Talon perhaps have been working on, which includes these engineered Sith troopers that have been essentially augmented and improved shortly after their birth, a project he's been working on for decades with unquestioning loyalty. This is where we have one of them ordered to kill himself, who immediately puts a lightsaber to his own chin and kills himself, uh, sort of being able to pull off what Maricea could not. He shows them these new annihilator craft that he has developed that will allow Sith and their ships to become one, and finally ready to reveal himself to the galaxy Crate reaches out through the dark side and sends ripples through all those who have touched the dark side, or he says all who serve it, but later they talk about it being touched by the dark side, to let them essentially know that he is alive, which gives hope to many of the one Sith, but not Darth Weirlot, because he's so screwed now. It gives a momentary pause to the battle between Antares Draco and Darth Havoc, because Havoc realizes that his master is alive, and, and Antares is like, what? Huh? And the fact that he sensed it at all reminds Havoc, hey, you know, you do have darkness in you. Join me. And he winds up force lightninging Antares when Antares won't go with him. And it appears, at least for now, um, that a good man has fallen. Antares Draco has died at the hands of Darth Havoc. We wind up seeing Wolf killing Darth Azard. But really, the, the big finale, the big finish, and the big cliffhanger, in essence, is the battle between Cade and Isen. Because they reach... One of the sinkholes. Utapau is all about the sinkholes. And remember, as we know from Obi-Wan Kenobi and Revenge of the Sith, there's water at, a bottom, a bunch of the, at the bottom of a bunch of these sinkholes. So he's fighting against Isen. And he's, he senses, Cade that is, senses Crate still being alive and cries out no at this, right? You know, he thought that he had killed Crate. He thought he saw Crate die back in uh, Vector, and yet... Crate still lives. So in essence, his mission is back on, the one that he took uh, as something that's his own responsibility. And Isen, realizing that he cannot really defeat Cade in battle, and realizing that his mission is essentially to kill Utapau, not necessarily to kill Cade Skywalker, takes the vial, the one vial of this concoction, this virus that only he understands, only he can create, and essentially jumps to his death, carrying it with him, so that he will fall into the Utapau water supply and release it, thereby 
defeating Cade, thereby defeating as many people as he can who are Alliance collaborators on the planet, etc., etc. Maybe Garstazi, if Garstazi hadn't left already, but he's already getting the heck out of there. And he says, you know, uh, the impact will shatter this vial when I hit the water. I am immune to it. Utapau is not. I have won. But of course, he's going to splash into the water way, way, way down there, so he may die, he may survive. Hard to say. But he's not going to get the chance anyway, because as he drops, Cade's like, you don't know me at all, and jumps himself... And as the two of them are falling, he is he catches up to Ison, slices him in half at the waist, causing Ison to drop the closed vial. Thank goodness it was closed. If he had opened it before jumping, it'd all be over. And Cade uses the force, apparently not just to grab it and stabilize it, but also, I guess, to keep the stopper on it. And it must be a really good stopper. He splashes down into the water and recovers the disease, the, the virus, before it can be unleashed, thereby saving Utapau. And while he's underwater, says, for a moment, Cade is stunned and his mind reels. He sees a vision of his life, but not his past, his future. He sees basically himself battling Darth Crate yet again, although Crate is in his full armor, etc., etc. It says, and beyond that, nothing. So he has a vision of the future. He knows he will confront Crate again. That is his destiny, but sees absolutely nothing beyond that point, suggesting that perhaps that will be the battle in which he dies. And when he finally emerges from the water, the ending lines of the story are, are pretty profound, I think, and set up what's going to come in Legacy War. It says, rotten, no good, useless, stinking force. I hate visions. Can't sense nothing afterward. Is that where I die? Is that what you're showing me? I get it now. Everything that's happened all my life, you shaped me to do this. Doesn't matter if I'm a Jedi or not, or if I'm a Skywalker or not. Everyone has a destiny. This one is mine. I could feel it in my gut. So me and Crate, one final round. Never expected to get old, never figured to die in bed. I've got a job to do, even if it's my last. The only thing I think that would have made that a better send-off for the main series into war, aside from the, little, the beginning of the end down in the corner, would be if after he said, I've got a job to do, even if it's my last, if he had followed that with, we take what is given. But unfortunately, the opportunity to use that iconic line that is so tied into that character, that is so memorable from this series, was not used at that moment. But with that, Cade is on a one-way trip to take out Crate again. The regular series of Legacy is over, and Legacy War looms ahead. So, some of the things I want to point out. The princess being tortured isn't like when Han Solo gets tortured or when Rey gets tortured by Darth Vader is Sith and Kylo Ren, a potential Sith or some other dark side user. No, when these one Sith do it, like they're not messing around. She is cut up from head to toe. Like, I mean, she is brutally scarred. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, and, and you'd mentioned the fact, you know, that uh, uh, Draco stayed behind there. I mean, there's a great line there, you know, uh, Ganner goes, princess, you must leave her. Everything we've risked will mean nothing. And Draco's all go. Then he turns back to the Sith. Come, you hounds of the dark. Come to your death. Hurl your power at me. I deny you. I defy you. I am a knight of the Empire, and I am your doom. And then, of course, that's when his master shows up. Impressive. I always knew you had a talent for death, Antares. And that's when he notices him. He goes, you do live. I thought I had killed you when we last met. You deserve death. You deprive Saya of her mother. 
And he responds, her death was regrettable but necessary. You should have made certain of my demise, Antares. I thought I'd taught you better than that. And my name is now Darth Havoc. Try to remember that. Your markings look good on you, Antares. Truer, too, than you believe. There has always been a darkness in you. You are better suited to Korriban than Bastion, as I will prove. And he goes, this is Draco, try it. I look forward to the chance to kill you again, Nine. And what's interesting about this is at this moment, before all this happens, when he says, impressive, I always knew you had a talent for death. Antares has a double-bladed lightsaber and a single lightsaber. But the moment they go to fight, Antares throws the double-bladed down and sticks only to the single blade. And he commits to fighting with that. I thought that was an interesting little twist. Now, the what the fuck moment for me in this is why in the hell... Does Krayat have these Sith troopers that he has augmented them since birth? So, I mean, they're full grown looking in these tanks. Why hasn't he been using them? Why does he have these ships that can take out a Star Destroyer with one shot? Well, he answers, he he says, as powerful as my one Sith are, they are Sith. Invariably, or excuse me, inevitably, someone would rise up to try to challenge me as Weirlock did. I desired an army suitably loyal and undefeatable. So I get what you're saying of why didn't he use these already? He would have won already. But there's also the sort of, at least now, with the ones set the way that they are, he had them as his tools. Whereas now, in theory, he's isolated and needs his own sort of backup everything because he may have to go up against the, the structure and the forces that he himself built up originally. So I think that's what they're getting at with this. But yeah, it does seem odd that he's got all this stuff sitting back there, including like Star Destroyer annihilating starfighters. And he's like, oh, I can't wait to try these out. And sure, you know, Talon is probably sitting there like, why haven't you? Yeah, yeah, that one was definitely the one where I'm like, man, like, I know it's like playing Risk when you've got like an army of 500 and you're like, dude, everybody's easy. Like, eh, you know, every now and again, you kind of just want to, you know, Play with the enemy a little bit. Ah, eh, my one Sith, they can toy with the Jedi all day. I've got a bigger army waiting. I mean, they can even wipe out my own Sith. Getting back to the great dialogue between Draco and his master, though. No! No, he's dead! <laughs> you feel it also. The mind of Lord Crate reverberating through the dark side. Final proof, Antares. The dark side exists in you. Admit it and join us. Never. I will never join you. I will die fighting you! And that's when he launches him with the, with the uh, electricity there. Just... See, I had forgotten about that. I was like, oh my god, like, whoa, they just offed him that quick? Like, holy cow. So I thought that was kind of a cool moment. Uh, and, and the fact that you have Shadow saying, you know, a good man has fallen, I thought that was great because Draco basically, he never succumbed to his darkness. It was there. Uh, he even mentioned it in one of the earlier issues that his passion was his greatest strength as well as his weakness. His master always told him so, which was kind of fitting that his master went to the dark side also. But the, the dialogue about the mom, right? Like, you almost kind of get the sense that he left the order and that she died after he left the order. And that's where I'm kind of like, man, why? Like, I just kind of feel like they slid that in. Like, oh, well, you know, that just make one more reason why we got to hate this guy because he killed the Empress. Okay. But I don't know. Like, there's a part of me that really is interested in the aspect of, well, you know, if you're not going to commit fully to your vows, we're just going to off you. I'm like, oh, oh my God, that's deep. <laughs> Only a Sith deals in absolutes or Imperial Knights. <laughs> And the other thing, too, is Ison. Now, you know, what he does, it was a great moment for Cade, but I kept thinking, like, 
you know, he's the only one that has this information. So he's decided at this point that the best thing to do is just, I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to go for this one shot. The one Sith have this one planet we're going to wipe out. To me, if I was Ison, I would be like, well, you can either stop this vial or me because I know how to make more. And I'd throw that vial and I'd run. I'd be like, you have a choice, dude. You're either going to stop me from killing more planets and let this one die. Or you're going to stop this one planet and then try to find me again. Like, I would have done that. I wouldn't have... To me, the Sith are selfish. That didn't seem like something that Ison should have done. Like, that seemed like a very stupid maneuver. But I love the fact that Cade cut him in half before he hit the water. And he literally grabbed the vial, like, as he hit the water. So that was a really cool moment as well. Yeah, I mean, this was a really solid end of the arc. If this had been the end of the series, I would have been like, No, there's too much left to tell. But that's why war was coming. Uh, and they had announced that as of the end of this issue, uh, and I think they actually announced it immediately before, but this issue addresses it in the letters pages, you know, that, that Legacy War is coming. I mean, that's what's going to wrap this all up. So in essence, this is getting us ready for the big finale, not the big finale itself. But even then, it's very action-packed. I mean, we got basically four simultaneous lightsaber duels going on uh, at, at one point. And we've got some good character moments for various characters we've known in some cases since the beginning, whether we're talking Antares, Draco, Cade, or whomever. Um, although some of the characters do seem like they're kind of along for the ride. Uh, Rowanfell doesn't really get any play in the issue. Shadow Vow is there, but not really doing much. He's just fighting alongside the others. Ganner Creed, kind of the same thing. But I mean, this is... This is kind of what we were expecting. The next time that all these characters came together, it would be something that would uh, even top Vector in terms of the battle that would ensue. And it would be a very personal one based on Cade's very, uh, very driven personality and his focus on Vol Eisen. But again, it's it's one of those ones that leaves you sitting there saying, well, Weirlock is still out there. Crate is still out there. We know Cade's going to have to confront him. So in essence, this is like in a video game, taking down the sub-boss before going after the big boss. Or <laughs> this is taking out Dr. Mengele, but not yet having gone after Hitler. So it's a satisfying ending in the sense that we knew there was more coming. And we're like, yeah, here we go. But at the same time, um, a lot of loose threads still to pull together. Uh, I think it probably would have made more sense for them just to let it go on to, like, issue number 60, flush out a few of the little bits and pieces in here a bit more uh, with, say, four extra issues and let, uh, you know, War be six and toss that into that as opposed to arbitrarily saying, well, we're just going to end it at 50. And that, I think, was... We saw that, we've talked about that before, you know, back in the day when this kind of stuff was going on, too. Um, that it just seems as though that arbitrary, we're going to end it now and go to miniseries, or we're going to end it now and I guess we should have a miniseries to, to cap it off thing, was kind of, it, was, it felt like an arbitrary decision. And a lot of it was the, well, we're approaching the anniversary. Uh, they even say it in, where, let me flip to the letters page here. Let's see. I leave you with this important reminder. 2011 marks not only Dark Horse Comics' 25th anniversary, but also our 20th anniversary publishing Star Wars comics. Well, okay, but is that a reason to say, well, we're just going to stop all the issues where they are. We're going to start renumbering with miniseries and stuff so that it's easier to be accessible. I don't know. I mean, it just seems like that was an arbitrary decision that meant that this had to be a final issue of a series. But to Ostrander and Dursima's credit, they didn't. 
I mean, they, it seems like certain pieces were perhaps rushed because there was stuff we might have seen in other issues if they had the time to give it their due. Maybe we would have gotten a flashback to Eshkarnin and the Empress, perhaps, as an issue. But they didn't say, okay, well, we just got to wrap it up now, wrapped it up in a nice little ball, and then had Legacy War, when announced, turn out to just be something that was kind of an, an unnecessary end cap. That is the one thing that bugged me about Knights of the Old Republic. Knights of the Old Republic did end with a nice little bow at the end of its regular run. So that Knights of the Old Republic War felt really shoehorned in and absolutely unnecessary. This one, they were betting on war being their end cap, so they allowed this to end on these cliffhangers and give us a strong finale, but know that a stronger finale was still coming to truly wrap everything up. That is, to me, that was my much preferred, even at the time, way of executing this whole regular series versus a war miniseries thing rather than what was done with KOTOR. When we got to this point, or when we get into Legacy War, do we know about Legacy Volume 2? Had they announced it at this point or at the next arc, do we remember? Because I kind of feel like we had that promise that we were going to get more legacy that it wasn't just ending at this point. Cause I, I remember when they first mentioned, you know, it's ending at 50 and it was like, Oh, it's over, you know? And then they're like, Oh, but we got more stuff coming, you know? And then there was that thought of, Oh, well maybe we're going to see, you know, cause they talked about who the next series is going to be. And it's like, Oh, well maybe, maybe we're going to see Cade, you know? And I kept thinking, Oh, the, the whole Joker squad and you've got Hondo car and, and you know, all that stuff's going to get told. But I can't remember if that was if that came after war or if it was at this moment. It was apparently after, uh, and this is something that I did not recall. I had to pull this up, you know, credit where due on Wikipedia. Um, but they point out that the last issue of this series came out in August of 2010. Legacy War ran from 2010 to uh, from December of 2010 to May of 2011. That uh, John Ostrander and Jan Dersima were gearing up for Dawn of the Jedi at the time. And it was only after a lot of comic retailers, because of how sought-after Legacy was, that they kept pestering him, you know, what about Legacy, what about Legacy, what about Legacy? And it was at the Emerald City Comic Con in 2012 that Randy Stradley approached uh, Karina Bechko and Gabriel Hardman about whether they'd be interested in writing a Star Wars comic, which is what, of course, led to... Legacy Volume 2, which wasn't announced until December of 2012. So we had about, really if, just from the standpoint of, of being readers out here, we had about a year and a half between the end of Legacy War and the announcement that there would be a Legacy Volume 2. So as far as we knew for a while, War was going to be it. And as far as we knew along with that, that that was not just going to be it for Legacy, but the farthest into the future that the Legends continuity, what we call Legends now, was going to be able to reach. Yeah, that was definitely one of those things. Like, I remember when they announced it thinking, oh, all those little things that they didn't wrap up. Because, you know, when we get to this point, like, when you get to these four issues, you almost don't realize you're at the end. Like, I mean, you just feel like you're trucking along, and then it's like, whoa, wait, things are wrapping up really quick. What's going on? And then you like get to the end, and you're like, wait, that's it? Hold on, whoa, whoa, we got other things. Like, thank God they had that war arc, but even in that war arc, there were still so many little things, like the Hondo car, you know, going after Mandalore and all that stuff, that were just left wide open. That I was like, you definitely felt like you almost, and I don't, I don't know if this plays into, it, but you almost felt like they knew at that point that Disney was buying Star Wars and that everything that was about to happen was happening, but they were very tight-lipped about it. You know, like nobody knew except for the people at the high up and they were only saying, hey, this is what we're doing. We're not going to tell you why, because it, it just 
there were so many aspects of this huge story that they just they consolidated it down to like 10 major points. We got to hit these 10 points. Yeah, there's 25 that we've worked on in these 50 issues, but we've got to hit these 10. The rest, we may come back, we may not. And I, for me, that was the weird part about it. Like, there was so much really good things, and yet there were still, like, why didn't they talk about, why didn't they put in this scene? And, you know, I mean, we got that little scene with Joker Squad. Like, that was great. Like, I don't know. There, there was that, I kept coming back to that when I was reading it. There was so much about this era that, that honestly, I don't think they were expecting people to really dig. Like, Joker Squad, I think that they really honestly kind of thought, like, they did enough with what they gave us, but yet I'm one of those people that when I read it, I wanted to know more. I was really excited that we had a Mandalorian arc because at that point in Legends, there was that feeling like you had three major powers, the Jedi, the Sith, and the Mandalorians, you know, and it didn't matter what era, somehow they all factored into it, whether it was like the Clone Wars where the Mandalorians were pretty much wiped out, or if you go back to KOTOR 2 where the Jedi were almost wiped out, like there was always one aspect of it where one of those factions was either at war or being annihilated and you just have that feeling like okay the mandalorians are coming you know you're like okay that's gonna happen and yet here we get to that moment and they just start wrapping things up and that was one of the things that just wasn't there and i kept looking for it like ah ah but overall man this this arc delivered in a way that you just it's hard to offer this arc to be like you gotta just read number 10 you know because like this piggybacks off of so much great things that it's hard for me as a fan of this, as somebody that really enjoys and loves this, to say that continuity is a bad thing and that it hampers story. I mean, sometimes you get the best stories. This as an example, because it's built off the backs of other good stories and other good characters that authors put the time in and they put the care in to make sure that the details are right. So, I mean, like this is one of those crowning examples. I mean, you've got the Stover effect, and then you've got the legacy factor. Yeah, this. I mean, it was a very strong conclusion. As I mentioned, it's just it's one of those things that, you know, I I was glad to see that they were heading towards war as being a true ending. But as we waited for that miniseries to start, uh, this made for a nice jumping off point for it. Um, there are plenty of, you know, loose ends that we hoped maybe would get tied up in war. Several of them did not. Uh, nor did they get tied up in Legacy Volume 2. I sit back, though, and kind of wonder what must have been going through the minds of Jan Dersima and John Ostrander, though, because given the fact that it was still another year and a half before there'd be an announcement of Legacy Volume 2, and it hadn't even entered the cards yet as something they were even planning on, I mean, how must it have felt not only being the ones creating a, an entirely new era, the furthest in the future that we had ever seen with Star Wars, but now ending the story of that era, which could wind up being, essentially, if you're reading chronologically, the end of the Star Wars story, period. That is a heck of a burden to bear, and uh, I think that this arc, Extremes plus Fate of Dak, but Extremes in particular, and what we wind up seeing in Legacy War certainly did better at that than, unfortunately, what we got with Legacy Volume 2. We've talked about Legacy Volume 2, at least some of the arcs of it here on the show, and uh, it's very much sort of if if the choice is between going out with a bang or a whimper, the saga went out with a bang by the end of 2011 and then started whimpering shortly thereafter as it tried to get a little bit more shoved into this era um, that didn't wind up working out quite as well. But... That's just me. I'm sure there are I'm sure there are people who love Legacy Volume 2 and can't stand Legacy Volume 1. I tend to be the one who's the opposite that I love Legacy Volume 1 and I think Legacy Volume 2 was an ungodly missed opportunity. But that's just me. 
No, man. Legacy Volume 2 is, is the death gas. The bloated body farting in the coffin. <laughs> oh! Oh, now that should be one of those little tags that they add at the bottom of the uh, of the cover of one of the trade paperbacks, you know, for the quotes from reviewers. There's your epiphy. (laughs) It's like a corpse fart. Uh, Now, speaking of wrapping things up, we should probably hit our covers before we have to go. Uh, We've got four of them here. We got 47 death of a planet and we've got Stazzy's superstar destroyer coming in above deck. We've got the crossfires in the background and possibly one Sith ship. It's kind of hard to tell. And their blaster bolts coming from another angle. So, you know, the enemy fleet, you don't see them. I actually I think that's probably one of my favorites of these four, uh, just because I'm really big fan of the space battle type stuff. Forty eight. Cade Skywalker, Sith Hunter. You know, I love the premise here. You know, the, like I said, I've been waiting for a Punisher Jedi. This is where we get that moment. Uh, we've got him and that weird spiky looking uh, Sith. I can't remember what his name was, but he's got the Hawaiian-esque type tattoos all over his body. This, it's got the uh, protocol droid heads up on the sticks, kind of reminiscent to what the Vong were doing. But this one, I, I was never really a fan of the computer-generated character stuff that they were doing on not just Legacy, but most of the series at that point. Uh, we get the 49. This one's got that more cartoony look to it, but I think of that cartoony look, you know, I've said in the past I'm not a big fan of it. I actually like this one. Uh, the shadowing and stuff really works. You get to see Cade and his master kind of teaming up again. It's like a very Kanan and Ezra kind of moment, only reversed. On the trail of the Sith! You know, again, kind of that promise of Cade's, you know, Cade's closing it out 50 is probably one of the coolest ones because unlike any of the others it is a front and back cover uh the end of an era you got Cade holding up his lightsaber and i want to say that this one was used for a lot of promo stuff uh we see the minoc in the background you see all this the fleet of the uh i think it's not just the alliance but there's also fell's imperial fleet in there as well that this is supposed to be the good fleet kind of sense uh but i i this is classic jandarisma art here you've got the you know this is the pinnacle cade you know this is the cade that you are going to see all throughout this comic jan just rocks it uh the lightsaber looks a little short but i'm okay with that so these covers um we've got ones by cook dursima and warner uh cook being the first and last 47 and 50 uh, Dursima doing 48 and Warner doing 49, if I'm reading my credits correctly here. And I, 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 my thoughts kind of echo Mark's in a lot of ways. The cover of 47, really, if it hadn't been for the fact that this was Mon Calamari slash Dak, that could have been a generic cover for almost any story that dealt with Garstazi's people, except for the fact that it's hitting water below. Um, but it is a really well-done cover. It's just doesn't have any characters on it, and Death of a Planet certainly is true i think when i picked it up i was thinking death of a planet must be you know oh the planet could die the planet's about to die or is dying but they're gonna save them right no not so much number 48 is an okay cover it does kind of have me laughing because now i can't see those droid heads on that cover without thinking of triple zero from the new marvel (laughs) continuity and boy how pissed he would be to have his head cut off and put on spikes and whatnot and uh i can't help looking at the bottom of the skywalker sith hunter Tomorrow on A&E, following Dog the Bounty Hunter. (laughs) Then we have number 49. Um, That one is not a favorite of mine because Cade doesn't really look really much like himself in that shot. It's just an odd, an odd image. Trying to go for the action of him running forward. It it strikes me as something you might have seen on one of the old 1980s um, G.I. Joe covers. Uh, in terms of the style of it, as opposed to being what we would necessarily expect from Legacy. But it's an alright cover. I mean, it's not bad. It's just not my favorite of them. 
And yeah, I absolutely love number 50's cover. It is a double-sided cover, so you can fold this sucker out. And you've got Cade, of course, on the one side with the lightsaber held up with his weapon and his, his iconic weapon in his other hand. It is, of course, stylized. No, he's not really standing on an asteroid floating in space. Duh. Um, while the ships come out around him. But it's a very solid, solid cover. Uh, although I find it kind of surprising that apparently that's a Cook cover, not a Dursima cover. Really? Given that that is the last... Let me pop it open and check. I'm popping it open. Pop, pop. Wrinkle, wrinkle, wrinkle. Quick double check. Cover art. Okay, it's both. It's Sean Cook and Jan Dersima working together, which makes me think, based on Sean Cook's work on number 47, that Cook probably did the ships and Dersima then did Cade. That's probably what we're looking at. That makes sense. A very iconic image. Uh, That's one that, you know, take off all the the words and everything, so it's just the so-called virgin artwork, and I'd put that up as a poster. I mean, that's a really nice shot, but then again... Favorite Star Wars character from Legends is Cade Skywalker. This is my favorite Star Wars comic series from Legends. And my wife and I, if we have a son, will name the child Cade. So I'm a little biased on that. <laughs> Just a tad. It, it's weird, though, that the farthest flung comic eras that Dark Horse gave us, KOTOR and Legacy, our favorites. Like, is that because they just had the freedom that we don't get otherwise? Or is it just because it's just so out there that it has the opportunity to be unique and different? I don't know. Uh, but I really enjoyed it myself. I'm going to say it's partly because they have the freedom to do what they want to do and be very creative with it. But also I would say it was it's a testament to the creative teams that were involved. Uh, Ostrander and Dursima did a great world-building job here in telling the legacy story, as did John Jackson Miller with KOTOR, as did BioWare with the KOTOR. Tour games, uh, as did Kevin J. Anderson and Tom Beach with Tales of the Jedi. They had freedom to create and actually sort of had to create their own eras in order to tell their stories, and in doing so gave us something very in-depth that oftentimes was deep in terms of its own continuity, which is funny because what are we being told constantly about why they're not pinning down the time frames, or even in some cases the order of new story group canon stories? Again, I love both continuities, but, when it, but one of the most frustrating things about story group canon right now is that they have stories that are all taking place near each other, and they don't seem to not only have not pinned down when each one takes place specifically within a year, or, or in the case of Between a New Hope and Empire, which year Between a New Hope and Empire, but they're also not pinning down the relative order of the stories. You have to figure out which novels take place before which comics based on, like, well, has Luke learned telekinesis yet? Has he heard Obi-Wan's voice yet? They say that they're doing that in order to give creative freedom (laughs) to their writers so they can tell the stories they want to tell and tell these exciting tales, as if somehow telling good tales, telling exciting stories, and continuity are two separate things, and never the twain shall meet. And as we see with Tales of the Jedi, Knights of the Old Republic, the games and the comics, and legacy, when you give someone a lot of creative freedom... Oftentimes what makes something great is the world building and the continuity building that they do. If you give us something that gives someone creative freedom and the story they put together doesn't matter a damn bit in the grand scheme of things. I'm looking at you, Honor Among Thieves. I'm looking at you, oh God, what was that horrible Razor's Edge? Razor's Edge. (laughs) Um, I'm looking at you, Chewbacca miniseries from Marvel. If you're going to give the creative freedom to just tell an unusual, exciting story free of any continuity, then a lot of times what you're doing is you are robbing your story of a lot of the connections, depth, and meaning that we are looking for. 
It's lazy. It's just lazy, man. Yeah, and and just saying that it the Chewbacca story, the Chewbacca miniseries needed to exist because we needed a reason why Chewie doesn't have his medal anymore. That is not enough of a reason. We need to grow and care about your characters. We need to care about their situations. We need to care about the consequences they face. They need to be deep psychological characters that we can get into and follow over time. Marvel, the best thing you could do right now is create a new series, kind of like Dr. Aphra, that is set somewhere within the galaxy far, far away in a system that you're going to world build like crazy, even if it's got to be in the same time period as most of the other comics you're doing. Make it something that you know will never show up on a television series, will never show up in a movie, so that you have complete creative freedom and then let them world build the hell out of it and kick butt. It's the corporate yeah. sector, it's the tie-on hegemony, is it whatever, but give us characters and situations we can care about and follow over time instead of it constantly being these stories that are filled with clickbait, matter not in the least, or filled with only the characters whose fates we know, so there's no real tension when they get into scrapes. You can do better than this, Marvel. You are the company that did stuff like Infinity Gauntlet. Your movies are out there kicking all kinds of butt. Why is it that your comics for Star Wars right now, with the exception of Dr. Aphra, I would argue to some extent, and a little bit of Poe Dameron, for the most part, your comics are mediocre at best. How do you make the first crossover Vader's, uh, what is it, not Vader's Quest, Vader Down? What do you make your first crossover into something that should be incredibly meaningful that doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning in the grand scheme of things? Why is it that your second crossover that should be, again, very meaningful winds up basically being a special Halloween episode of Star Wars? What are you <laughs> doing? Give us stories that matter or hand the reins to somebody else, for God's sake, because right now you're giving us what amounts to comic boxes full of filler. Give us more like Kanan that you gave us. Stories that matter. Stories that matter to the characters we care about, or give us characters we can grow to care about like Afra. But don't give us this middling crap. You have a strong legacy that you have to live up to from what Dark Horse did for decades, and you're not doing it. We will buy whatever has a Star Wars label on it. We are part of the problem. <laughs> but you are the ones actually creating. So get with the creativity already. Amen. So um, on that note, <laughs> um, speaking of stories with characters we can grow to enjoy, characters that are more in-depth psychologically and characters we're going to find connect to something else later that will probably give us more enjoyment of those characters in that thing. That's right, just recently we saw the release of Star Wars Battlefront 2 Inferno Squad by Christy Golden. I actually just finished reading it last night. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm now more excited for Battlefront 2 than I was to begin with. We'll surely talk about the book on the show. Uh, in fact, I'll probably wind up talking about it with Michael on Classic Casino too, because it's a, a game tie-in type of thing, and he's really stoked for it. That nice. said... In the process of picking up all these different versions, asking Barrett to please, please, please grab the one from San Diego Comic Con, getting the one from Barnes & Noble, getting one from Books A Million, etc., etc., a review copy dropped into my lap, which winds up being essentially the same version that I picked up from Books A Million. So I have a spare copy of Inferno Squad here and would like to uh, give that away here as part of the show. So if you stuck with us this long through this episode on Legacy and you're ready to jump back to canon and want to check out Inferno Squad to enter this contest, it's very simple. Simply email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. 
in the subject header, put Inferno Squad, not contest because we may have more of these running soon. Just put Inferno Squad as your subject line. And in the body of the email, make sure you tell us your name and your address in case you win so we can get it sent out to you. At this point, let's just say uh, we'll have about a month. So go ahead and send in those uh, entries. We'll take them all the way up until midnight on the night of August 31st, also known as 12 a.m. on September 1st. And then we'll draw a winner and send out that hardback copy of Inferno Squad, the one used to work on the Star Wars Timeline Gold, mind you, uh, to that lucky winner. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films, we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And a huge Starkiller-based size thank you to our editor, Michael Yankovic, for editing, mixing, mastering each and every episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films for your listening entertainment and for helping us keep going. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report's second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our show's episodes on both Twitter and Facebook at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars or Legends questions, or if you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you guys our trial of Audible. You can go www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report. You get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. That's right, you get a book. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 book titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing. Thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that I'll make it through another episode again without mentioning a saga on home video, my new book that you should pick up. Aw, oh, crap. <laughs> it's a good book, though, man. It's chock full of stuff. I gotta get a copy. I'm slacking. I'm sorry, man. That's my bad. Traitor! <laughs> And with me, like, why does that not say that? What the? F- Hold on a sec. My show notes did something really weird today. And with me, unlike the lines that are missing from the show notes, it's oh, actually, I'm glad that I noticed that because it is episode 220, not 16. F- that's a good blooper. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're episode whatever. Oh God. This episode, we explore John Jackson Miller's... Nope. This episode, we explore...